This episode, I'm joined once again by Jesuit priest and writer Ryan Duns to discuss the overlap between theology and horror. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast or just keep everything running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Ryan Duns, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Uh, so we are just going to have a general discussion really about theology and horror and I guess sacramental stuff and spooky stuff and the overlap between the divine and the, what you consider the yeah, horror and the horrific. And we sort of, we discussed this because you were doing a course on theology and horror, which focused on the, the series by Netflix, Midnight Mass, along with a few other films, I believe. So we outlined a few films that we've watched, but I'm sure we're super familiar with anyway, which was the four films of Hellraiser, Exorcist 1 and 3, not 2, and then, um, <laughs> and also Rosemary's Baby, which really I would say are the if you were to ask anyone who's into horror, said, give me four quintessential horror films. Those four, are, I would say, are going to be there most of the time. And it's oddly coincidental that all four of them are so heavily reliant, if not basically need, the divine to uphold why things are horrific, which is super, super interesting to me. Um, but before we dive into the questions which I've outlined, I just want to say, I, I want to ask, I guess, you did this course on theology and horror. I mean, where did it begin for you to start see, as, as a teacher, to go, to sort of start thinking, hmm, okay, horror, there is clearly something very uh, clearly theological going on here, and we should sort of pay attention to this as a cultural phenomenon. Sure. I, you know, Teaching the course, I wanted to introduce my students to metaphysics hmm. and the best textbook I could find. And he he was a teacher of mine was uh, Nuri Clark, the one and the many. And it happened such that I was I had spent the summer before summer 2021 kind of reading through that book. And it struck me that horror would be a really interesting and engaging way to, to, to meet the students and their questions. Preparing all fall to teach that class of fall of 21, I was, I was scrambling for a good, a good hook that would allow me to, to do this. And then I watched last October midnight mass and I thought, oh my goodness, this is a really theologically sophisticated series. It doesn't get everything right. And I don't follow it in all directions, but where I find it going wrong, it goes wrong in really interesting ways, ways that I thought were theologically provocative. Mm -hmm. And my hope was, and I think it succeeded based on the class evaluations and then students, have, as I've seen since then, was to start to carve out a, a theologically sophisticated, metaphysically rich world picture and to kick, to allow the horror genre to kick against it to see what what kind of got you know tossed up a bit and mm -hmm. what types of questions do the horror films presuppose we as humans ask mm -hmm. and i have to say the students were phenomenal in doing this they really got into it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i guess the the really big question for me with theology for horror, for the fact that it's still a mainstay of pretty much most horror films. And, and actually, when you think about it, the horror films which fall flat are the ones where really the, the, the monster was just a vicious human being, right? Like at the end, you find out they were just a killer. And I'm not saying that's not horrifying, but it's, I don't think it's, I think it's terrifying, but you're sort of like, oh, okay. 
like we've seen that now and there's still there's no unknown so i'm you just sort of run away and you think yeah that's just a serial killer and there isn't this unknown element so it's not really horrifying anymore and so this 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 within you know the, the banal cliche thing to say we live in a secular society it's undeniable most people are secular or atheist or would probably just apathetic don't care and yet in the extremely popular genre of horror films it's really odd to me that sacraments that christianity that the divine is clearly still taken very sincerely as something where you enter into the, as soon as you click on the horror film it's almost like you got you're like right now now we're taking it seriously again um so yeah i put that question to you i mean why why do you think that is within this world where you suddenly go right crucifix crucifixes mean something again you know this is i'm just gonna because i was watching it minutes before we (laughs) began this the 1987 movie witchboard it's terrible it's a terrible i mean it says it's own cult following the the beginning of the of the movie starts with a scene of two men and a woman on a couch and they're having a chat and the one is a you arguing for the existence of god and the other one comes back with the very cliche you know, well then who created god <laughs> okay fine so we have the you know, so he establishes the character the director as the um as the movie's atheist but then the whole rest of the film is pre- presupposes a spiritual dimension and these <laughs> malevolent forces that are operative unseen. I, so I, I think there is a deep hunger and a deep intuition that there are levels to reality that are unseen, but no less real because of it. I mean, the, whether we profess in the Nicene Creed, we believe in things visible and invisible. Uh, William James uh, you know, his, you know, the father of American psychology has this, you know, the varieties of religious experience. And he arrives at the end and to say like, yeah, there is something like there are levels of reality that we, that we need to get into touch with that par- part of our well-being to be religious is to be in Congress with. And I think that the sacramental dimension of Christianity and Catholicism especially gives us tangible, tactile um, ways of being in literally in touch with mm-hmm. the divine mm-hmm. in a way it, 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 we, you could say it's almost primordial like mm-hmm. this you know we, we have a, a felt sense of the the conflict between good and evil and that a force for good, the transcendent, is in some way on our side and able to uh, negate, push back against the boundaries of darkness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's always, it's still quite funny that, it, that, and The Exorcist is probably the best film to do this, that it's always the last thing. And this is something that I'm trying to write about recently as well with respect to people converting and coming back to God in the very secular age is that like you sort of, you have this thing of like, right, well, you know, when you find meaning in life, you start with material, like get a fast car, get a nice house and you go, I still haven't got meaning. I'll try, I'll t- like, I'll try a group or some club or something and do that. Still haven't got meaning. I'll try an alternative religion. It doesn't mm. really, it works for a little bit. And then you try like a more serious alternative religion or something. And then you might go to like one of the big monotheistic religions, but, it, but, it, but it's still consumerist in the sense, but, but, but it is that, but not really. It's our special one. And then the last resort. Yeah, okay. 
I'll be, I'll become a Christian, right? The thing of your youth or whatever, the thing of your, your heritage in a way. And it's the same with possession. The Exodus is a great case where they go, well, it's something in her brain. And then they go through to like, it's something in her spine, I think. And then, and then finally they have this big group meeting of the doctors in the Exorcist. And you see this one sort of begrudgingly go, are you a, are you a, do you believe in God? You know, like they, they like, yeah, okay. Well, the last thing. And it's really interesting to me that, even in that sense, there's still this notion that at least we can all, there's still a cultural agreement that that could at least be an option. Like the apathy hasn't gone so far where we where possession isn't even a thing anymore. Like it's still a thing, like just holding on. You're right. I think there's this bizarre reductive impulse. You know, is, we talked back in, what was it? February, February I think. Yeah. You know, I've been, I, I have a writing leave next semester. I'm going to be working on, on, a project involving horror. And as part of my research, and I always feel like I'm a I'm a bad researcher because I read the things that I like and I follow, you know, I try to go where the honey is. So I recently read uh, Matthias Klassen's like Why Horror Seduces mm. or um, Aaron Smuts, the late Aaron Smuts. Uh, but the problem I've had with their their work is it's so reductive. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the, the the approaches that we see in The Exorcist, where, well, it can't be that, it can't be that. You, what Mary Midgley called nothing buttery. Oh, it's nothing but a brain tumor. It's nothing but epilepsy. It's nothing but of some form of mental illness. It's nothing but uh, your repressed sexual urges for your parents or whatever it's going to be. But you're right that we we sort of remove those objections and is however improbable it may seem to the characters, at least there's an opening mm. to a tra- the transcendent. I mean, it's there's a weird way in which those films enact or perform the purgation of the spiritual life, but they do so by removing this mental clutter of all the supports and structures we think you know they, they maintain our world picture mm. as those collapse. Rather than fall into total, you know, uh, be buried under the debris, there must be something there. There, are, oddly, the good horror movies profoundly anti-nihilist mm-hmm. because by raising the ground of 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 all this, the human created supports, we risk coming into contact with a force not of our own making, mm-hmm. but one that is very real and presses itself upon us. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I remember last time you 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 mentioned that horror it really presents a negative, not negative theology, but a negative image of theology. Right, and Hellraiser does this especially, where the Cenobites and the lead Cenobite uh, Pinhead, which is sort of yeah. weird that that's his actual name, but he's trying to, in a way, present himself as the Christ figure. If it was completely the world flipped upside down, and he's always, in a way, he's always struggling because he doesn't have, there isn't, and the, the only thing they don't have is a negative grace. So they don't have something. And so it's always this self built, all they really have is pain. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned that it's a negative purgation. So the purgation, which is brought about by, I guess, by a spiritual life, is you yourself shedding things away because you're trying to move closer to God and you're trying to move closer to love. Whereas the negative image is we have to keep moving away all the horrible stuff to get through to that. But both places, I guess, arrive at the same location, which is hope, but via horrible, one via horrible means. So eventually you have this like final hope, which is quite a nice way of putting it. I mean, it's not nice for, for Reagan and the exorcist, but right. it's, but it is a hope. 
And I guess, I guess the horror, maybe the horrifying thing is maybe, and maybe a horror film needs to do this would be the, like the exorcism doesn't work. That would be interesting. Where do you go then? Right. Because, because it's the, the acknowledgement of this is the final, this is the final thing. Like if this doesn't work, then we're really in completely unknown territory, but it always works. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, like take, take even the exorcist, um, I know we didn't necessarily bring this one up, but like Exorcist Two, <laughs> you know, she, you know, she's brought into the labyrinth, and the names. I mean, I saw this about six months ago. So, the heroine and the young woman, the blonde girl, they're in this labyrinth, and at the heart of the labyrinth is Leviathan, and this transcendent, you know, it is above and beyond, and it seems to be uh, manipulating that underworld, the upside down, if we want to go Stranger Things type mm-hmm. imagery, we have this Leviathan that is the dark, uh, the version of the dark transcendent. Mm-hmm. And it is malevolent and it is destructive and corruptive of the flesh. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as you put it, the, the obverse would be, say, uh, John of the Cross and the spiritual canticle. The bride's cry, the wound, the heart wounded by love, goes out on its pilgrimage in search of love, in search of the beloved for whom the heart longs. So like an Augustinian itinerary. But there, that transcendent love is wooing you. You're always being drawn. And throughout the world, as you grow more attuned and aware of the divine traces, you are drawn deeper and deeper by love to love. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and that's the transformative. So even the the transformative process that although purgative, although, you know, and purifying, it is such to recreate us in the image and likeness of the beloved that we are drawn into this, into the perichoresis of divine love and, and we, uh, to join that divine conspiracy of the Trinity. Whereas in, in, the Exorcist, or in Hellraiser one and two, that diabolical power—it is dividing people. Mm-hmm. It it transforms the flesh, but not into communion, but quite quite actually division. And they're they're less human. They're less themselves. Uh, they're more. I guess I don't know the. the the graced, you know, the, the the graced body of the, ris- of, the of the risen Christ stands quite opposite to the, the 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 wounded pain flesh of the chatterer or pinhead. You know, it's they're just two very different things. Mm, mm. It's 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 um it's fantastic because it's it's this especially with Hellraiser. I mean, Hellraiser is the great. I mentioned this with Colby Dickinson where he says. Um, Theologically, Christianity is always a theology of disappointment because you'll never fully get to the thing that you want really until you're dead, hopefully, right? Maybe the presence of God or the, you see the face of God, the beatific vision. You, you aren't going to get that now, but there's always, really what's drawing that on is hope. The inverse of this is still a disappointment, but it's like a pure disappointment because with Hellraiser, I mean, Pinhead, as I said, I mean, he's, he, he is, he's always in the admittance of like, all, all we really have is pain and and his, especially in the, in the book, The Hellbound Heart, and actually, if you haven't, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but the latest Hellraiser, which has a real emphasis on the theology and on Leviathan and this like just need to keep going further, is this talk about like 
oh, you should see what we can do with your nerve endings, right? Like they finally got it down to the most pain of pain. But then Pinhead's almost, almost saying like, we haven't really got anything more than pain and pleasure where pain is broached to such a degree that it becomes pleasure. But then you go, okay, but where, where then? And all he's, all he's got is suffering because that's the limit of material existence is suffering. So he's like, we'll just keep pushing that. But then it's like, okay, but where then? You know, they haven't, they haven't got anything. So their eternity is just, we'll just keep torturing you and finding new ways to cause suffering, which is just an odd disappointment. Well, you know, it's funny because what is the set? I mean, for the Christian imagination, it's the passion, death and resurrection of Christ that, that becomes the the gravitational center, mm-hmm. a passio, I mean, a suffering, mm-hmm. a pattern, you know, that we under that there's an undergoing of Christ, and then as you know, of John of the Cross again, the spiritual canticle uh, to be wooed by the beloved is to be drawn beneath the shadow of the cross to mm-hmm. join the one you love. But that pathic structure of the Christian life is duplicated but corrupted within the horror film because it's suffering to what end? You know, it's it, you know, Johann Baptist Metz. We'll talk about like Leiden on God, like it's to suffer unto God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to whom does pinhead suffer for whom unto whom? You know, it's, there's, there's just suffering. It's not redemptive. It is not transformative. And it's not to say that we suffer because it's good, mm. but I think all gro- in all, authentic growth and maturation there is a suffering and undergoing as one is retuned or and transformed over time but in hellraiser it it is just an interminable suffering it's pain for the sake of pain mm-hmm. but it's not to do anything other than the only feeling one can have i guess yeah i mean that's it's terrifying mm, i guess that's terrifying the the, ter- the suffering isn't terrifying in its in its sense but it's it's terrifying in the sense that the teleology is pinhead saying to you know pinhead you know the most probably one of the most famous quotes you know do not cry your tears are a waste of good suffering and you i guess you think to yourself but a waste a waste for whom like literally suffering for suffering and i guess that's the horror is oh like this is we're just doing this for its own sake um which is yeah suffering for a purpose has has meaning so it is it's like it's a is it a physical a physical representation of nihilism. We have nothing else but to do, so we'll, we'll we'll just suffer and we'll just keep suffering. Why? That's the horror of the argument. There's no why. There you go. Deal with it. <laughs> Onivarum. I mean, again, the, the obverse of Angelus Silesius. You know, the why create Onivarum? It is without a why, out of love. Hmm. The, the mystery of being, love, or. There is no. It's just there. You know, it's an unanswered question not to be grappled with, only to be grasped by and 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 not even fully immolated. You just linger. It's nerve endings, you know, mm. provoked and antagonized for eternity. The the, you know, the negative image of, of the beatific vision. Mm. And it's it, and that's a really a great encapsulation of you know the 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 one sort of actual definition we have of hell from christ which is eternal separation from god is really eternal separation from love and i guess when you don't have love it's not necessarily the suffering 
You know, I I always thought there was a disappointment as well with Hellraiser that they should have they should have gone more psychological. You know, the flesh the flesh stuff. Sometimes you think oh, another another hook going through skin. Like, okay, we got it now. Yeah. I wanted I. It sounds a bit masochistic, sadistic in a way, but I wanted to see. What happens when you push the psychological horror to its limit, where someone's just, I don't know, put in a room and they go, they've been there for a thousand years, which I think is done well in Black Mirror and Twilight Zone and things like this, where people are pushed to their psychological limit. Because I think that's the real hell, right? Flesh gets flesh, flesh with no immolation, as you said, gets boring. You go, okay, we get it. You, you've, you've, you've flailed someone again. <laughs> yeah. Saw and hostile. Yeah. And there they get the psychological and the physical, but they don't, I mean, it's, you don't really get the, I, I have never found anything spiritually provocative or interesting about Hostel other than to say like, well, this is very negative anthropology. This book, <laughs> is this what we are capable of? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in, in back to the secular, secular world idea, I mean, the, 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 it's like the cliche horror question, but maybe it's not often asked in a theological sense. Why, why do we have this obvious fascination with when we step into a horror film we're going to get down we're going to get down to it right we're going to get into that weird little zone that we all intuit is there why do we have this fascination with the occult the hidden the the devil the 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 spooky stuff of reality i think about this a lot like why do i like it and there's certainly i'd like to think i have a, a fairly eclectic set of tastes when it comes to to horror you know, horror is the genre that that it, it names the genre that and what it tries to do to inculcate a sense of horror or dread and what is horror i mean in some ways i i look at it's it's our emotional affective physical response to a breach in the world as we understand it that there is something intruding upon us that is a threat, that is harrowing. And I, mean, I, I, I believe it's still um, yeah, Carol's, the, Noel Carroll's The Philosophy of Horror gets this better than most, that there's something cognitive and evaluative that's going on. But it doesn't go much. I mean, it, it, in some ways, he's drawing back on, on Rudolf Otto, and the numinous, that there is something, it's translated as non-rational, but I think we would say you su- not super rational, but over-saturating, mm. uh, that is beyond our ability to comprehend. Mm. And that horror is one way of putting us in touch with that, something we intuit natively, mm. that there's more, there's more to reality than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. And... In other eras, when we had a common narrative, say in the a Christian Western narrative, where we had a common vision of our teleology, we don't need, maybe we don't need the horrifying to, to reawaken a sense of, of the transcendent or the unseen. As we, as we move, say, from 1500 to the year 2022, that, that's changing, that our sense of a common teleology has collapsed. Uh, we've become, you know, the the canons of the Enlightenment, which I think are important, uh, but you know, to to move away from immaturity to a form of maturity, but that's it's just at the time of of of, of Kant and what is Enlightenment, what seventeen eighty three, twenty years before you have Horace Walpole writing uh, the Castle of Otranto, and as we have moved 
rude, you know, modernity and such. Uh, you, you see this dawning of interest in the unseen order uh, that's around us. So I think it, I, I think just anthropologically, we're constituted to be in, in touch with the infinite and the transcendent, and that the horror is one way of reopening those clogged passages that uh, our, our secular narrative uh, has closed off or you know rubbled over for, for traditional religions, but there are still avenues to pursue them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess what you what you're saying there about this sort of saturation of reality or like a hyper reality, it makes me think of David Lynch. So David David Foster Wallace he comments about people say David Lynch is a surrealist, but he he talked about how surrealism is really like surrealism. It's like the extra thing on realism. It's like hyper realism. And I think Lynch is the the master of this, right? I mean, not not even in the weird stuff that the, the really horrible stuff that he does in with that horrible creature behind the bin in uh yeah um i can't remember the name of the film lost the film but his masterwork with the camera where he'll just linger on a shot for just too long and you're sat there thinking like please move away because we all intuit that there's just something more going on here or he'll just zoom in for like 20 seconds and you just think i don't want to i don't want to go that deep into reality right now and that that intuitive sense of there's something more but we don't really give it give it the time i guess well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Sartrean, right? Like in uh, Nausea, that there's that there's this way of lingering. And I, oh, I think horror is a one opportunity. It's going to a horror film on a on a Friday night or Saturday night. It's communal. There's something about going to behold this. Uh, iconic depiction, depending, maybe iconic, uh, that in some way it's that we're going because we want to experience something. We want the film to implicate us within its telling. And it, I think a good horror film asks us to dwell, as you're saying, on features of reality or features of the world that we often look past too quickly. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's sort of, it, it's a disruption that invites us to look into the breach and ask, what do we really see? Is I, I you know, in the middle of the night, I hear, I hear glass breaking in my house. Now in the daytime, I think, oh, the cat knocked it over. Mm-hmm. But at night, all of a sudden I can conjure up all of these images of a dark and malevolent force that is breaking it upon me. Well, there's something about that. Uh, what if? What if there is more to reality? That this isn't all there is, and I think I think horror films become our quasi monstrances to go sacramental again, that mediate that encounter and provoke us uh, to consider. This, I mean that 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 idea of light and dark and literal light and dark, like you said, like the glass breaks in the day, you don't think anything of it, but at night your your mind suddenly is like there's a thousand and one things. This for me was pointed out. After the first time after I watched Rosemary's Baby, I remember thinking, why is that so unnerving? And I was reading around and someone basically just pointed out, said the the reason Rosemary's Baby is this masterwork of horror is pretty much none of the film takes place in darkness. And in fact, the the director, uh, Polanski, emphasizes the fact that I think pretty much the only scene, and there's probably some psychoanalytical commentary on this, that takes place in the dark is 
uh, when early on her and her lover have sex in the flat and they turn off the light. Other than that, yeah. all the horror is he makes sure that it's like this is fully lit. You get to see everything and yet all the time you have this sense of, yep, something's here. I don't really like it. So it's almost like St. John of the Cross is darkness, but you're fully in it and you can see, which is even more horrifying. It's a, yeah, a quotidian evil. <laughs> I mean, today, by today's standards, I would, I would imagine if I showed Rosemary's Baby, it was too long to put into our course mm. as a film. My students would not find it. They would not initially find it scary because it doesn't have the jump scares. It doesn't have the, uh, over the top, but I think that's a you made that, that that's a great observation. Like it is all done except for the one scene within within daylight. It's 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 ambient lighting, mm. and what is evil and at work does so under the cover of it, 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 in the daylight. It's not it's not creeping behind the bookshelf waiting to jump out at you. It is rather it's here and in our midst. Mm. You know, it's, it's active and present. It's beguiling, as as we see with Guy, but it is also uh, hostile and transformative and evil. And, yeah. And she can't get away. I mean, you know, there's like, I think that my favorite scene is here when, when she finally thinks she's gone to a doctor who can, who is outside of what whoever's, you know, pulling the strings and then all of a sudden... The doctor says, oh, just wait here a minute. And then you're waiting for some, like, this is the final hope. And then all of a sudden, all the people who are in on it say, Rosemary, you know, what are you doing? And, and you know, at that point, it's like, it's, it, okay, yeah. it's gone. She's gone. It, well, she's just lost full control. Yeah. And you see the, 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 the shunting aside of religion. I mean, there's the, you know, the, the visit of the Pope, her flashbacks of, of, of Catholic her Catholic education, her Catholic upbringing. But the guy sort of laughs it off. And where is, where is God in all of this? I mean, I think that's even more chilling that, that the antichrist can have a child can, that can become flesh. Mm. And all these nice old people, like the people you sit next to at church on a Sunday, or they go to the four o'clock supper are gathered around and they are agents of evil ushering in. And she has her conversion, mm. like a mother's, a mother's love still. And she reaches out and rocks the cradle. I mean, that's terrifying. Mm. Uh, the, it's not even the, well, Hannah Arendt's the banality of evil. I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> you know, a bunch of people gathered around the bassinet and just to, to coo at the baby. It's quite funny in a way, right? That, that, that that in itself is the neg negative image of daily Catholicism or daily Christianity, right? At the end of mass, you have, you know, the polite old ladies bake the cake again and you all sit around and have a nice chat about tea. And they're all sitting around, they're acting, all the people in Rosemary's Baby in that final scene are all acting, like they, they sort of look at her like, well, you know, it's after, it's after mass, right? We're just having our tea. It's like, yeah, the, baby, the baby's over there, right? And it's, yeah. it's that, that emphasis on like the one person who is completely filled with that dread of this is not, Something is going on here, and you guys just aren't seeing it. And yeah, they 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 don't want to see it. Which which I guess it brings me to a question because the devil the devil plays a role in Rosemary's Baby, which is um, basically elusive. He's not really he's not really there. He's just in the background, like pulling the strings and making sure everything everyone played their role. I mean, it's probably a very banal question, but as a as a priest and a Jesuit, I mean, where do you, 
what film do you think gets the devil right? What do you think film have you finished and you think that was a, the best encapsulation of the devil I've seen? Oof. So it'll be cliche. I want to bracket the dramatic ending of The Exorcist. Mm. But if you if you read the the novel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you have next to you Saint Ignatius of Loyola's Rules for Discernment, mm-hmm. there are four parts to the novel The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. You can index the rules for discernment as if it is as if William Peter Blatty had had those rules to talk about how the evil spirit is at work in the human's mm-hmm. life. The way that it, the way it is, it sows doubt and discord. The way it is corruptive. Uh, the, the, I think, I think that book and then the movie shows that the negative effect that we become, you know, that that evil is a dehumanizing, inhumanizing force. It's making us less human. The seductive power of evil. You know, worship me, and I will give you all of this when it touches the human flesh is corruptive mm. and it it's isolating and it's vile and vulgar and profane. You, you could take, to be honest, the best horror movie of, if you want to see the, the work of evil at work, the very best movie, the original, the lion King, <laughs> because look at scar versus Mufasa. You see, you see Mufasa and the lion, the, the, the intelligi, the achieved reality of what a lion should look like. Mm-hmm. Heroic, majestic, powerful. And then you have Scar. And this is a world where, you know, we we don't see one lion eat another. We do see one lion kill his brother. It's at least alluded to. But then um, you, you have Simba, Timon and Pumbaa eating the grubs. That's a genocide. And we take it for granted. Like, oh, it's cute and funny because they're eating all these grubs. Well, they, all those little creatures lost their lives. We, the, the nature of evil, that it becomes a commonplace. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the way it affects Scar, he's deteriorated and wizened and small-spirited, pusillanimous. I mean, I think those are, for me, that's the, 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 the trace of evil. It doesn't come in glitter and gold. It comes in this small-souled cruelty, myopia, mistrust, divisive. Uh, and that's it becomes the opportunity for discernment of how is this leading me away from being a fully flourishing uh, human? Mm. And I guess, yeah, The Exorcist is that that example of Reagan being really, you know, the, 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 in a way, the, the cliche, sweet young girl, like the, the, the absolute... Uh, opposite of a demon but then yeah. as you say the 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 inability for the demonic in the sense that it corrupts you know the the human being being the image of god the soul soul being breathed into the human being by god and being quite literally you know uh, uh yeah the image of god the demon coming face to face that is like it's like in the, in the flesh suit but unable to to do like all it can do is ruin it um because yeah. it just can't be a human it can't be humble and there you have you, the, the the pivot from Exorcist One, ex, ex, Exorcist Three, you know, Damien Karras, come into me, come into me. 
hear the a perversion of Maranatha, you know, come Lord Jesus, you know, come in to me, take me as possession. Mm-hmm. And then we see what that looks like decades, well, decade and a half later mm-hmm. in, in, in the third movie. Um, and the minute that Pazuzu does inhabit Karis's body, you see Reagan, her voice returns. She becomes herself again. And you see it in the rictus of, 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 of Karis before he propels himself out the window. You know, that, that final moment of conflict, the one, the, the most conflicted soul in a way throughout the movie, because we've watched his internal wrestling. I mean, Reagan, Reagan was a, an easier victim. And here, the willing victim who who throws himself out the window. You know, this is, yeah, I mean, I think it's theologically rich and very suggestive work. Yeah, I mean, Blatty, Blatty clearly did a lot of research for that. And I, I, I think it's a testament to Jason Miller's acting that even though you're, as the viewer from the, the third position, completely aware that, you know, Damien Karras is, is sort of having, he's questioning his own faith. Um, he's having a complete spiritual crisis, but at the same time, they still trust him as like the advisor to all these other priests who are having spiritual crisis. So, like as a as a viewer, it's amazing because you're you're in this balancing act of I completely trust this guy, but I also know that he could not win here because he's he's in his most vulnerable. But you still yeah. you still trust him more than this the 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 other priest. I I feel this anyway, at least who the other one who's doing the the rite of exorcism exorcism with him. You feel like I know I I trust Damien here to get through this more for some reason. I don't particularly know why, but yeah, that that undercurrent of all of this has just been a ploy to try destroy Karis's faith, basically. And yeah. and and at the end, it's like. Ray, you know, they say Reagan doesn't remember thing. It's almost like psh, done. Like demons, demons done with her. You know, Car- yeah. we got we got Karis. Karis is now well. You don't know this is Nexus One, but locked up and he's basically just chained to a bed. <laughs> yeah, and then it, you and even the conquest of Lancaster Merritt. I mean, you assume. I remember maybe watching it the second time. I watched it when I was young, like a kid, watching it, and you think, "Wow, Lancaster Merritt! Like here he is. You know this." authority this powerful figure spiritual guru he has experience but even then i mean there's there's a there's a way in which the film plays on this sociophobic that we believe that religion will redeem and it doesn't <laughs> like that, that that if that it, could religion be irrelevant impotent and it would seem as such. Lancaster Marin can't do it. And and the uh, weirdly, the ritual doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's only the invitation. It's not the in, invoking the exorcism ritual. It's the invitation of Karis to you know, to to swap himself mm-hmm. to lay down one's life mm-hmm. for somebody who's not even his friend. You know, I think that's yeah. I, I've not thought of that aspect of it here until now, but. You could take the, I mean, there's so much that goes on. And I remember when we watched the, the film in class, the, the students really grooved on, on trying to find meaning or discern and discover what was going on in the, in the, the cinematic text. And this, yeah, I wish I could teach it again. <laughs> so the film, but is it, the film in a way then is, is, is sort of a failure. 
right? Like the whole thing is somewhat of a failure other than like, okay, so, you know, like you said, that impotent feeling of, okay, Reagan survived, but like, what well, we haven't really had any closure. I mean, in Exodus 1, you, you understand that Karras is dead, which I assume would mean the demon dies with the body or whatever, but, and then you go through to three. But, but in that initial film, if you were to keep that without three, it's like, okay, I, you know, I'm not really sure what happened there in a way. Like it was this, yeah, failure. And at the same time, (laughs) one of the great successes is that it doesn't explain, it does not overreach in its explanatory power. Mm -hmm. How do we get from an archaeological excavation to Georgetown? Mm -hmm. Why the the Ouija board, you know, a Mm -hmm. dark portal uh, that mediates a sinister encounter? All right, but... Why Reagan? It doesn't, It the movie doesn't overstep its bounds to try to make sense of everything. And there it, it, it recognizes with integrity the mystery of evil, that it's not something to be explained away. Mm-hmm. And even the end of the film, I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't cliche in trying to suggest, okay, now stay tuned for the, the sequel. You, it just, it ended. Mm-hmm. We assume Karis is dead, but as we learn in Exorcist Three, that's not true. Uh, but that's exciting, you know, that that, it, that the, the level of the openness to the mystery of the events hasn't been evacuated. Mm-hmm. And on that level, so it's it's a failure on one side. It's a success. I mean, so it's a, mm-hmm. I think that makes it a good film. It reminds me just to just to throw it in with the same the same balance and and I had to someone someone actually explained this to me recently that I don't know if you know this but to draw in Tolkien which seems like an odd person to draw draw in with the end of the Lord of the Rings and Return of the King with respect to this this horror and this failure someone explained to me that deep in the law uh, deep in all Tolkien's massive tombs of details of his world there is only three times that Luvatar basically God intervenes in that world and one of them is when the ring goes into the fire so Iluvatar god actually trips up Gollum so that the whole thing was a failure like it never evil never would have been destroyed and god eventually has to go trip them up so like Frodo has had this horrible you know evil taint with the scar and to go back to the shire that's been ruined they all have to go and live their own lives like they'll never get rid of it god had to intervene and say look you I'm gonna have to get rid of the sin for you and it's like you sort of have this, like Peter Jackson. Fair enough, he had to make a blockbuster, but there isn't that sense of like, oh man, we did we did we win? You know, the the, the evil is still like sprayed its horrible stench over everything, and everyone's still like, yeah, yeah, we don't want to think about that anymore. <laughs> well, but but isn't that the? Th- I mean, a, for me, for me, mm. a good horror film leaves its residue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just as. Okay, you're now a Catholic, so you you go to confession and you walk out and you feel cleansed. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is it is a feeling unlike any other I know. To walk out lessened of a burden, illuminated, invigorated, renewed. It has a, the spiritual, the, the the just the invoking of words. That formula of absolution is transformative. By contrast, when I walk out of a good horror film i'm like if it's good i'm putting the key, the keys in the car and i'm i'm looking over my shoulder mm. i'm wondering as i drive home 
what more could there be in this world? What else is at work? There's there's still state there remains an opening to more. So my like my theological imagination is more deeply enkindled mm-hmm. by that, by because it's raising questions that there are for there that there are things out of my control, mm-hmm. out of our control as humans. And that I think is what gets me um it is it, it, it sort of it levels a charge against the audience. You think you're in control. You think that you've got this under under uh, your power. Not so. Not so. Mm. It's interesting because I think maybe that's the backbone of good and bad horror is control and complete human control. So with with religion, I think I always or with Christianity, I think some people's reluctance is that in a sense you're giving over positive control to god right like grace is you can't you can't go run on a treadmill and work up grace right you can't you yeah. don't, you don't earn it you can't buy it you you get it and you may get it someone who is maybe uh extremely sinful may get loads you know if you want to quantify it which is a bad way to do it but for, i'm basically saying you you can't control grace you can't control that hope which is going to come in and uh, maybe that's what makes a, a, a bad horror film is like the humans just completely well we 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 figured it out right like a rational a rational finish and you think well that's just awful whereas that that unknown there was on a knife's edge at the whole, the whole point yeah there's you, you i think a good horror film yeah, i'm thinking like burger and luckman the social construction of reality that there's a gnomic function within our symbolic universe that there's a law that has to be abided by Mm-hmm. That disruptions to that law, that nomos, have um, dire consequences mm-hmm. for the way we live. But we ourselves are neither the architects nor the ultimate enforcers of that law. That there is that there were other. I keep using the word forces, but there's a divine force at work to undergird, to to author, and to to maintain that law disruptions of it call require some form of redemption Hmm. and maybe good horror there is an element of the redemptive story of being of a power not again of our control that has to intervene or break through or be allowed to break through to manifest itself again the sacraments uh sacraments got you know with like God doing what God always tries to do, you know, to feed, to clean, to heal, to bind together. That that, that there's a sacramental uh, countermeasure taken uh, to undo the, the the damage wrought by the dark. Mm. Do you, do you think we can really consider a horror film a horror film if it doesn't have at least some sincere respect for a divine or a uh, I want to say other other plane maybe other place i'd be you know some like a clear we're taking it seriously that there's some 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 more so i would be i, I it's hard to say mm. you know but when when noel carroll's book came out that was uh, he he was very specific in, in talking about like monsters that a horror movie has to have a monster in it and it has to uh be has to elicit like disgust and revulsion and that seemed to preclude films like saw hostile the silence of the lambs from being a horror film 
you could take more psychoanalytic approaches, the approach of like evolutionary psychology and try to do a really reductive version of horror. And I think that you could, you can then spread out the definition of horror uh, more broadly. For my money, I think the best horror films do have an appreciation for the implicit metaphysical world picture that, 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 we have a way that we envision the world to operate under normal laws. We have a sense of good and evil of what things or people ought to do. So we have a teleological sensitivity and that horror is deliberately interrupting those expectations or, or overthrowing them. And part of the, the narrative is how do we work? What works? How is that breach repaired? And that's part, I think part of the tension it creates is recognizing the breach, what the, the, the breakdown and wondering how does this get fixed if it can't be fixed at all? I, yeah. So I think, I, I do think you have to have some, I think the eighties, you see really interesting, um, much more theologically sophisticated, uh, filmmaking. Even if the implicit, oh, usually implicit. I think Hellraiser is—he's not writing with a Bible in his hand, but I think he, de- Clive Barker, certainly has uh, an imagination that's been touched. Stephen King, John, uh, John Carpenter, Wes Craven. I think that there's there's a lot going on there, mm. um, but we just have to kind of open our eyes to see it, and then you could almost evangelize out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that that, that those you know. I thought this when I sent over the film choices to you, that that, that era, 60s through to 80s, which is also the rise of sort of pulp paperback rise of, you know, every other kind of weird mystical meditation or peculiar 60s thing that people were abiding by. There, there was this sort of imbued sense of something more, I think, in that era and taking it seriously. And I mean, Clive Barker in, in The Hellbound Heart, which is one of the things I wish they'd sort of left in the movie, but... When he first calls, takes the box and calls the Cenobites to come, he's actually laid out an altar filled with basically inversions of the the altar in a Christian church. There's like a bowl of dove's heads and all these images of, you know, anti-innocence and things like this. And yeah, this 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 need for something more, but the the, the yeah, just the but once again that that the fact that these films are being written with this this compulsion for something more, but also, the characters don't want that something more to be God, which is always peculiar to me. But like, why yeah, that is? That's why I think, that, um, for my money, a, a horror film can work as a really great lab. Mm. You're looking at specimens. You're looking at forms of you know, what, what are the a priori convictions that characters hold about the way the world is? What counts as evidence? What matters most? Mm. And we can you can diagnose versions of of reductive materialism or you know what William, my guy William Desmond will call like postulatory finitism. Well, no, oh, the only thing that matters is matter and what I can see and manage and measure. Fine, but you you in many horror films you see that it's pushing past the limits of human reason, and that's even by by displaying our finitude. Uh, over against a horizon of the infinite, I, I think there's something that that's, that that puts us at ill. It makes us ill at ease and forces us to reconsider again and again and again our place in the universe. 
They're like existential, their invitations are existential reflection. Um, I don't think deliberately, I don't think a, a, an author or director is sitting out to, to do that deliberately. But I think that's the function that they they have. Mm. I was going to ask that. Do you think, you know, like the question of what, what actually, you know, the whole what actually is it we're going to see when we go see a horror film? Like, what do we think? What do we, I guess, deep down, we're thinking, I, I want my existential dread to be like pushed a bit right because i don't think yeah. when i go see a horror film i don't think to myself i want to see someone like chopped up because that doesn't it doesn't really interest me unless that's for some deeper reason i that would that would bore me i don't want to see really like a, i'm not interested in werewolves because it's like it's just a big like it's a big dog there's not, it's not <laughs> you know what i mean it's not really, it's not scary at all like if you had it in yeah. front of you you'd think yeah okay like we'll just shoot it or something like that's not scary to me so you you are implicitly thinking with Hellraiser, you're not thinking I want to go see all the pins dragged through his head, even though that's some part of it and there's there's something there. You're, there's that deeper thing of I want this to push the unknown. I want it to somehow show me the unknown, which is like the complete paradox, right? Show me the unknown somehow. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, look at – I mean, I still think I, – I mean, I find clowns creepy. <laughs> but Pennywise, look, in the storm drain, in the sh- – in, 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 in the sink, you know, drain, hmm. in the shower drain, in the movie uh, under the water in the flooded basement, in the, you know, down a, a well that you have to go through to get to his catacombs. You know, you think about the, the, the what is, the clowns are cute for, to some people and they're supposed to be fun, but they're, in this case, this, it, it can see, the, the facade conceals something unknown and hostile. And, and, and he becomes, you know, a, a really an inf- like an infernal icon. The face of the clown, the the hockey mask, the scarred face of Freddy Krueger, the mask of Michael Myers, that we gaze on, and it sort of looks back at us, and it forces us to wonder: Am I being watched? Mm-hmm. Am I alone in this wood? Am I alone in the house? It's not what I know that scares me. It's what is unknown. And now I know that I do not know that the unknown might be just behind me. And that is, yeah. I mean, like you, I mean, I, the beginning of um, The Exorcist, you know, he, he has narrative. And one of them is of a, a mafia who torture a man for, I think, like three days and apply electricity to his body parts and, mm. you know, humiliate him and such. Why? Why start with that? I mean, the, the 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 terror of real life is already bad enough, and then he's going to walk us into a work of ostensibly fiction. Mm-hmm. But it, it, what what mediates between our day to day, the quotidian, and the fiction that we enjoy in the theater? Like, I'll go to see the movie Terrifier too, although I'm quite confident I'm not going to like to see all the the blood, guts, and gore. I can go watch a mafia movie to see people dismembered. I'm just hoping that there's something more exploratory about mystery in the film. Mm-hmm. Or I'll just go because I want to have a laugh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's that idea of being followed is interesting. I mean, have you have you seen Insidious? Yes. Yeah. See now, Insidious. I don't. I don't rate jump scares in films generally i think jump scares is the cheapest form of horror it's like you know they've they've made you go ooh, yeah but it's like well yeah of course you did you, you just quickly put a scary face on the screen like of course it's going to make yeah. me jump that's not impressive but there's this amazing thing that i think james one 
does in Insidious as a director is that idea of the demon following or just the demon being in the room. He does like a shot where like the demon's just there and you've had time to process it and then does the jump. Or he'll just suddenly one shot for five seconds, the demon is in the corner of the room and then no one says anything about it. And I think that is that is the um, uh, as the viewer and the, this idea of one of the women, I think, in The Conjuring being a clairvoyant and knowing the demon is there. This idea that one of the characters can just see the demon all along is like, yeah, the demon, you know, and then she, she relays this later on in the film. She's like, yeah, since we arrived, I've just been seeing it. And this idea of being able to put the demon or whatever it is in front of you and still understanding that you are not in control. That is that yeah. for me is the perfect horror, which I think it's all encapsulated in in all those films. That there's always it's like there's something there we can't do anything about it, and now we've got to sit through this sort of painful realization process. Tell me, when did you find yourself interested in horror? When did you know that this was something that I I ever since I've been young, I didn't really realize this till recently. Till another horror writer who I interviewed a while ago pointed it out. He said that he's been interested in horror ever since uh, animatronics at uh, at theme parks. And these fascinate me um, to the point where sometimes I'll watch videos of old animatronic theme park rides that have been left since the 80s. And the visceral feeling of disgust and horror that I get at, at an animatronic, which is just a little bit not good enough. And mm. something about that that's like, we shouldn't have made this, right? Yeah, I don't know, yeah. just something horrible. Yeah, but yeah, but... But yeah, there's something about horror which gives you a feeling, that sort of feeling that, I don't know, we, we, we all intuit that this isn't right or something's not right right now. How about you? I, I think that's the same. I loved the idea of being scared. <laughs> and I don't know what, you know, I, I, I don't think I was a weirdo kid. I mean, I played the accordion. That was bad enough. But the, I just had the sense of, I loved a good story. And I, and I think a, a good horror film, well told, is a very powerful. It almost becomes a parable of a world we cannot see, and it showed the possibilities of, of, of and the importance of taking seriously the unseen order. And it was only many decades later that I'm reading William James, and I think, okay, like so, I'm not totally warped. There is a sensitivity or an attunement to this, and I. I appreciate that um, now as an adult. And my, I know the students did too. They, kids who loved horror movies were like, I'm not a freak. No, <laughs> it's good. You're just, I think you're just a good theologian. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, that does beg a, beg a question actually, because you, you brought up the Enlightenment and Kant earlier on. I mean, it's a bit of a heavier question. But it's, it's so clear to me reading Kant with the phenomena noumena and the idea that there's this like, I don't know, thing we can't approach. He is 100% rationally not interested in this being like, what is it? You know, his epistemology is not um, in any sense imbued. I don't think he's very, you know, he says he's talking about God. I think he's terrible at talking about God. And I don't even get a hint of the divine or anything. Like for him, this is something else, to be honest. I feel that way. I think it's very mechanical. But it's almost like in that sense when you, like his epistemology is not really to do with that. Whereas the a horror of epistemology is like we're saying to Kant, like, are you not are you not feeling this? You know, this this impasse? Why why are you not like terrified in a way? Yeah. The bridge between the noumena and the phenomena is crossed <laughs> from that direction inward. The advent of what is other and alien is 
it is possible mm-hmm. and it must be taken account of. Yeah, I mean, inter- epistemologically, <clears throat> but, but I, yeah, it, it'd be very hard. Yeah, I mean, the, the monster manifests itself in a way that disrupts our given order. And it undermines our sense of normality. Kant, I, I, yeah, I guess that epist- I mean, if he'd have a harder time accounting for that. I mean, I think he's, he evokes God, of course, you know, like, as a postulate of reason, but you know, practical reason, but we, we, we not as the one before whom we sing or dance, like as Heidegger said, um, just sort of there, uh, mm. like the divine insurance policy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's where it always fell flat for me with Kant and, and God. I just don't think, I don't know. He, 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 a peculiar man who, I don't know what he was trying to do in that sense. Right. That, that he sort yeah. of tries to defend it. As, I, 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 it just comes across to me as he's an atheist and he put that in as uh like yeah as actually as an insurance policy textually as well like if they're going to take this seriously i need to it just always felt tacked on anyway um is there anything you'd like to add about you know theology and horror that that we haven't touched on no this has been you know it's it's just nice to actually talk to someone about this who has shares an interest you know my students they were i mean they really were fabulous but they don't talk to you as a peer, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're like 20, 21 years old. And for them, their parents are the ones who like, if they like it at all, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. And they regard these as old horror movies. And I think, I still think that they're, the, the, a Nightmare on Elm Street is a really interesting and fun film. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not, it, 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 there's very little, I mean, or same with Halloween. There's there's no blood in Halloween, the original. Um, uh, it's unfortunate. I think that the, the the franchise did not do Michael Myers justice. Mm. But but I I think at the end of the day, I, I think the horror gives us opportunities to think of the way the finite world can be disclosive of the infinite, and how our ability to persevere as agents as subjects rests upon how we comport ourselves vis-a-vis that infinite often enough it gives us like the negative image of of of, of evil and gives provokes us to think about it mm. but then you flip that around and you think oh so then if this is the dark path narrated by this film is there a more luminous or celestial way we could travel the way of grace, the way of hope, the way, you know, that doesn't discount the reality of suffering and pain and and the the passion, Mm. but one that at least is capable or has hope enough to redeem it. So, yeah, I mean, it's like from horror to hope, from fear to faith, that sort of itinerary is what, where where I I think it's, it's fun to speculate. Mm. That's interesting. Just, just a one more thing on that. This idea of like, if there's this one negative thing, then there's the other way, right? There's the up and the down, etc. One, you know, I'm not big on films being just turned into extended series. Generally, it doesn't work out all that well. But Hellraiser was one that I thought there's so much lore here that I want to know about. So there's this, there's this always this intuitive sense. I think they push it in quite a few films that the Lamarckian configuration and the box. There were others mm. which go to different realms. I think that's fairly clear in the in the in the law but it's almost like what you know i want to know i want to know and i want to know if there is one that goes to genuine 
heaven, right? Because that doesn't make sense to me that there would be this weird object that does that. It just seems like the whole thing was a trick. But I wanted to, I wanted to see like what what are the other de- what are the other demons and cenobites which are pain is so obvious, I guess. Yeah. You know what what are the other ones going to do? You know, in, well, it, there's that scene at what the end of <laughs> Hellraiser 48, or <laughs> I think it's Hellraiser 4 or 5, you know, where Pinhead has an encounter, is, is, is forced to spare a human. Mm. And it's this celestial being who descends and then gets torn to shreds itself mm-hmm. uh, by Pinhead. Like sort of this divine emissary comes forward and we assume, I guess, that it's from God. Mm. You know, is it? Is it a winged Jesus? I was, I should probably watch it again, but where it, it says like, oh, you know, this, we, this one is to be spared, da, 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 da. and then Pena kills the, the, divine, the luminous being. It's, oh, there is, but there's Lord, like, so there is, there is an, at least a tacit acknowledgement that there's something luminous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, like, you know, the, the thing as a as someone who likes Rene Girard, I've been mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by uh, uh, the Purge mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Um, on a secular, I mean, it's almost like a Flannery O'Connor novel come to life, but without redemptive grace. I mean, there's good usually comes out at the end, but it's violent and pessimistic, or what Roger Haight has taken to call like the. the Antic pessimism of our age. I think in the movies, the Purge series, uh, I think that's very much at play. That there is this sense of world weariness that we don't have much hope, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the fundamental discouragement, and those films sort of like take that for granted mm-hmm. that we're just in this this mess of te- you know it's just awful and bad, and you have to survive, yeah. but it's not being redeemed. Whereas other, I think the more supernatural horror films are less, uh, I'm gonna call it navel gazing, but they're they take they can take the antic pessimism of our era, and at least show how it could possibly be transformed. Yeah, this is one of the strange. Um, are you good for time? Oh sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the strange, and I don't know fully where I stand with it yet, but I know you're watching Dharma at the moment, and uh, I finished up Dharma. Obviously, I'm. I can't really spoil it because we all know what what, what happens there in real, in real life. Um, but this this odd fascination with serial killers, where when they're turned into these these icons of consumption, and you like Dharma falls into the horror genre, even though we shouldn't really say it. And like Dharma on screen isn't. We all know there's an actor. This has been written, but yeah. but there's this weird um, impasse between the reality and the thing on the screen, and so. Maybe I'm speaking for myself. Maybe I'm sick in the head or something. But there's this weird, like, you know, how sick is this guy going to be sort of thing, right? And we keep trying to push the boat with, like, it's another serial killer series. And, like, why do we want to see this? And it seems to be the same thing as The Purge of, like, you know, the question of why do I want to go watch a 10-episode highly detailed retelling of this horrendous story? And it is yep. that that odd fascination of, like, it probably is just the question of, like, why? Like, why did this happen? And who is this guy that's this, like, anomaly of all that is human or not human? But one right, thing I mean, well, um, one thing I'll just add in, sorry, yeah. that, that really interested me, and I remember getting to the end, so it's the second to last episode, and this isn't really a spoiler. They treat 
redemption and baptism so sincerely and seriously at the end of Dharma, I was sort of taken aback because that they they really accept it as a given, as that it is what it is. And I'm the same thing has happened to quite a few serial killers, which I find very interesting. But but I remember thinking, wow, that's quite a bold move. Um, yeah. But that, that overlap yeah. between serial killers and horror is, is a peculiar one, I think. Well, I mean, look at, I mean, Netflix is making hay with, I mean, you have John Wayne Gacy and there is that, um, the, is it the man in gray, the fish, Albert Fish, Albert Alfred Fish? fish. Albert fish. You know, he, here you have movies made about a serial killer and then Dahmer. I mean, and I live in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, I walked by the site of the, his apartment building a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, it only took a few drinks and then we went for a walk and wanted to go canvas the hood to see where, where uh, Jeffrey Dahmer used to to uh, frequent, to haunt. But it, it's funny, like it, it, one of my students wrote me to suggest that I watch the series and said, you know, it raises for me the question, like, is it mental illness? Mm-hmm. Is it something else? But again, Mary Midgley's nothing buttery. Is it nothing but mental <laughs> illness? Or... And I think many of us would feel better if we could say, oh, it's just mm. the X factor. But when you, in, in, you, I've only seen the first three episodes, but oh, he had a hernia operation. Oh, he you, could that have done something to his head? Okay, explanatory cause. Um, a, a needy mother, emotionally unstable mother, abusive, family, you know, neglectful, maybe family situation. Is it nothing but a symptom of that or a symptom of that? But there's, and you always, you're left with this residue, but what if it's something else? What if there's something more? And, you know, the the Dahmer types, the Gacy's, the Bundy's, the fish, they raise real questions for us about what it means to be human. And so, yeah, it, it's fascinating how, how people have like really, like it catches a moment. Mm. and holds people's attention for some time. Mm. Well, it's almost, not to trivialize it, I guess it almost is like the the real-life encapsulation of Hellraiser, right? When you live in a secular, divineless, just consuming culture, you almost like, I need to watch the thing that just keeps pushing, like, I need to see the extreme of what can happen. You know, it's like the pin, yeah. not, yeah, it sounds trivial, but like the pin, in the sense that Pinhead only has pain, if we only have material, then it's like, I need to see the show or the thing which can just keep pushing that material. Otherwise, I'm just going to get bored. Yeah, we have such sights to show you. <laughs> you know, this as if, I mean, but, but that's our consumptive, entertainment-driven society. I mean, we hunger for the, the the outlandish and the grotesque. I mean, I, again, I said about Terrifier 2, which I will see. Uh, apparently, there it's a great marketing ploy, even if it's not true. People vomiting and passing out and running out of theaters. <laughs> oh, you know... Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, I want to see. Like, But the, the, the thing is, like, my curiosity says, what is it that's doing it? And can I withstand it? Can I... You know, it's an endurance competition. Can I allow myself to undergo it, this pathic experience, and how will I respond? Um, Has any horror film ever sort of genuinely terrified you that you that's lingered with you? Your Midsommar. Midsommar, I has, that and Hereditary, 
Yeah. I find both of those. I found uh, us. Mm-hmm. Jordan Peele. Um, I find I found those to to have left more of a trace on my my thinking, and I don't know why. Even the witch, a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, The Exorcist. I, maybe I'm a Jesuit because I saw that movie, and I said, <laughs> "All right, well, I, I, if these are the good guys, I'm gonna if I'm gonna be a priest, I may as well be on their side." But, but those are the films that I, I, I've I've thought more about lately. Mm. And I, I see, I can, maybe it's because I've seen them more recently, but they leave me ill at ease. Mm-hmm. The Purge has left me very ill at ease because I think it is, it's, it's a diagnostic of a general feeling. Um, yeah. Also, the fact that it's, it itself as an object has become so popular, right? It almost shows this like, do you really, do we all really want this odd sadistic catharsis that, that bad? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I, you know, two years ago in the 2020, so October, on Halloween night, I was walking back. I was out for a walk. I was coming back, and there's some dorms just down the street from me. And maybe it was at 8 o'clock at night. Someone was playing the sound, the music, the, the, the siren <laughs> from the purge. <laughs> and I thought, how? Like, in my, I had this. Horrible sinking feeling in my stomach just as I as I heard that music and like that sound. It's like wow. And for those who have ears to hear, they too would have this evocation of this horrendous catharsis at the expense of innocent life and uh, the, the the marginalized of our society. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. I, yeah. The beautiful thing, I guess, with the purge, beautiful, but but that that odd that odd gut moment is like we've all got to acknowledge you know once the second hand you know it's now non-purge it's like you're still you're right there in front of someone who might have just blown away your neighbor's brains or whatever right that like boom it's almost like you know the feeling after the exorcist where they you know does she remember anything and we all have to now acknowledge like that sort of happened but we you know that weird movement back into well now we're back into normal life and just moving yeah. on is a strange in between space of we're just we still got one foot in the horror zone, and we've yeah. got to somehow move forward. Yeah, and we never leave it. I mean, it, 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 like even Reagan has the she bears the traces on her face. The family bears the trace of a, the the butchered loved one, the, the the father who was killed, and the mother who's who the second hand saves. You know that horror leaves a mark. Mm. It leaves a mark. Yeah, you know, that's the in the, the the bottom of the orca when uh, Quinn and uh, Hooper and Chief Brody are talking in J and Jaws, and they're singing and telling their stories, sharing scars, mm-hmm. and each scar tr- points back to an event, a transformative event that lingers in memory until we get to the pathos of. Of, of the shark hunter himself. Like, why do you go after the box? He was involved in this horrendous, so that a simple, like a tattoo codes for an entire life that is mm-hmm. under the surface, but is something that happened prior in life that shapes and charts the direction of life itself. Mm-hmm. So you're currently working on a book on theology and horror? Yeah, I think I'm just going to call it. It had been tentatively titled uh, "The Dark Transcendent." Uh, the 
metaphysics and theology of horror. Mm-hmm. The problem is it's such a big topic. That's huge. And I'm of a mind that just to call it horror, a theology. And just to see where it goes, I have no, what's terrifying to me is I don't have a plan and I, a perfect itinerary for it. On January 1st, I will start. I don't know where it will go. I need to find a publisher. I'll have to write a couple chapters and then send it out. But it strikes me that I think the time is right for this type of book. There's lots of religion and horror and you've probably seen. There's nothing really unless you could tell me of like a theology of horror. I know you had given me some links, but I don't see a lot. Even yeah, Brandon Grafius's new book, which is pretty good. Um, it's not a theology of horror. It's scripture and this religion broadly construed mm-hmm. um, Christianity. Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't. I know nothing springs to mind. Yeah. And that is Doug Cowan, I think is great. Sacred tear, the forbidden body. There's this, um, yeah. The Gospel of the Living Dead. Baylor puts this out. Mm-hmm. And this is okay. I mean, I thought it was a good, I mean, it's a fun book, but it, 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 as a theologian, it's I find it a little thin on the theology. <laughs> and so my hope would be pe- using like Rudolf Otto, Carol, even Peter Berger, um, Iris Murdoch, the whole kid, like my, my intellectual friends to see what I can do. I don't know if it'll work, but I have a rare, I have the, I have the semester to do something, so I may as well make it a. Yeah. I'd like to write a book that you could give to college kids in a course called "The Theology of Horror," mm-hmm. and let them see that you know, oh, there's there's something to be said for this, so that the parents aren't like, "What the hell are you teaching my kid?" <laughs> that they're like, "Oh, okay, the hell you're teaching my kid is pretty good because mm-hmm. it's helping mm-hmm. them to." Help me reignite a sense of the divine. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I think there's definitely a space for it. I mean, it's so obvious that it's it's so clear that it's there in in horror in general. But it, yeah. as you say, it needs that rigorous theological background to explain perhaps real, why it, it is. You know, more reasons as to but why is this on a theological level that this is so scary. Yeah, and I I, I think it needs it. It calls for reflection. I will admit my, the what is most. Um, terrifying about writing about horror is people take it very i mean rightly they take it very seriously Mm -hmm. but my worry is how to negotiate that's why a horror a theology in some ways works better for me because you almost feel this pressure to take up the chains of the psychoanalytic approaches of the evolutionary psychologists of the then do I have to, how much of, say, uh, Japanese horror or non-Western, non-American horror am I tr- responsible as a scholar to engage? Because mm-hmm. if you try to do everything, you will succeed in doing nothing. But if you don't do a sufficient amount of the background or the you know, other voices, you're, it's, it's not a, the project loses some of its integrity. So that's why I'm trying now to pick my constellation of topics. Mm-hmm. Um but it's hard. I find this to be the hardest part. If I could just identify the artifacts or the um, specific loci, mm. I feel much more comfortable yeah. as I said. There's forward. a lot there. There's so many avenues you could easily dip into. Yeah. 
Well, I look into it's, it. it's an embarrassment <laughs> because well because it's just all over the place. It's everywhere. Yeah, with the intuition, yeah. I can follow an intuition. So once I start, I think the path will present itself. Okay, but you know, I mean, it's like but like a conversion narrative. I mean, you don't know where you're going. No, you just move a little bit day by day, and then you look back and you go, ah, makes sense now. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I look forward to it. Um, I'm sure you'll find a publisher and, I, you know, hopefully you'll get to talk about it one day. I'd love that. Ryan love Dunst, that. It's, uh, yeah, it's been great again. Thank you very much. My friend, good to see you.